everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch podcast. We've been gone for a couple of weeks because Jack got a job. Woo, yay. yay. And it sort of threw off our scheduling. But we're back, and we're, we're good to go. Hopefully, potentially, maybe. This week, we're talking about Critical Role episode 14, Shopping and Shipping. Uh, starring Orion Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vaxil Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Travis Willingham as Grog, and as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Uh, previously on Critical Role, the party had just returned. Hey, we going to introduce and... ourselves again, right. or are we going to forget about that? Yeah, let me let's forget about that because it's been four weeks since we've done this, so <laughs> people may have I'm, forgotten. I'm John. At John A. Bates, executive producer here at Final Show Films, and with me today is Jack. Hey, I'm Jack. I'm at Alt F4 Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm J Thomas four one one Mania on Twitter with the at in front of. Because <laughs> you always put the at in front of it, but you never know. Somebody might not. Yep. All right. Okay. So <laughs> we're back in the mind. <laughs> Previously on Critical Role, the party has just arrived after a long and arduous trek through the Underdark beneath the Dwarven city of Craghammer. They were sent to retrieve a paladin named Lady Kima Vord, who was on a vision quest to stop some dark evil that her deity Bahamut told her was existing beneath the mountain range, and needed to be squelched. The party managed to salvage her from the insidious torture and through her aid, as well as that of a mind flayer who had been outcast from, from the society and the colony nearby, whom they managed to convince to help them as well, fought their way through the tunnels, past the Durgar army, eventually to the underground mind flayer colony of Yugvaril, where they found the entity called Kavarn a mad beholder who had been pseudo-possessed and given additional power by the Horn of Orcus, a great and evil artifact long forgotten which had been found uh, by him. Uh, they managed to make their way into the temple, kill Kavarn, tear the horn from its forehead, however, uh, which then found themselves immediately swarmed by the entire colony of Mind Flayers heading towards their temple. They managed to battle... Uh, they battled the Mind Flayers, nearly losing a few party members, and through a bit of clever thinking and ingenuity, escaped through the top of the pyramid that they were fighting in, gliding over the city of Yugvaril, uh, through the underground chasm, uh, and teleporting back to their distance to the distant city of Iman. Uh, they returned to Iman uh, from their Grace from their keep, Grayskull Keep, and have had an evening rest. Uh, upon waking the next morning, they managed to get some breakfast, freed Lady Kima from her stone entrapment. Uh, she was turned to stone by the last battle, or during the battle with the Beholder, and a conversation based around what they should or what they could do about the Horn of Orcus. Also, at the end of at the end of the last episode, Tiberius just took off. Fucked off. Yes, he did. But they. Do they actually... Yes, they yes, do. They do. So, this say is one of that? my notes. This is one yep. of my notes. Mm-hmm. So, okay. basically, his departure is retconned from a bitchy little fuck this shit, I'm out into an, oh, I just hopped off to buy a bag of holding, um, which kind of <laughs> irritated me, to be honest. Um, if you if you leave in a certain manner, or if, you know, if, if an episode ends on a certain manner, it always kind of bugs me when... It picks up because as it nothing did, had happened. Yeah, because it was sort of awkward. It comes back and like nothing has happened. Um, yeah, so just that, pretend that didn't go down. That, that's yeah. what I meant because I don't. I uh, it's been a couple weeks since I've watched this episode, but I don't remember 
much being said about the fact that he just left and everybody sort of picking back up where they were prior to him leaving, basically. Yeah, no, they basically yeah. just like, oh, I'm back. Oh, look, they here's a bag it. of holding that I bought. Yep. Okay, that that explains why I couldn't remember what happened. Uh, <laughs> so, after yeah. taking... After yeah, take, no, I think emotional consistency in a narrative arc, even in a small one, is fairly important. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's it certainly is, and it's it's... Uh, it's, it's something that you you kind of pick out is sort of what I would refer to this as actually a continuity a, a continuity break. Yes, um, where Absolutely. in in TV shows or even in books, uh, where uh, a something will have been filmed or recorded, and people will have uh, somebody in the editing room or behind the camera or somewhere missed a mistake. And rather than fixing the mistake, and rather than shoot, reshooting the rather than reshooting the the scene and fixing the mistake, they'll just leave it in and hope nobody notices it. A very famous one uh, that, that at least that I can recall was a episode of uh, of um uh what was why can't I suddenly remember it the Superman Describe it in Smallville detail. Smallville oh Smallville okay. an episode of Smallville. Uh, in which a uh, a super not not actually Supergirl but Supergirl light some sort of weird super Supergirl type character played by an actress whose name I can't remember but um, there's a bit where she reaches out to try to stop Clark Kent from leaving and instead of saying Clark she says Tom which was the <laughs> the actor's name actor Tom Willing, uh, Tom Williams. Uh, Fucking yeah. Smallville. Oh, God. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, this uh, one's a little more subjective because it's technically <laughs> open to interpretation. It's not as clear as, you know, shooting a scene where the keys are on the table and then they're in the bowl in the next time you look at the table, you know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, but, no, yeah, no. Well, this, would still, this would still qualify definitely as a, as a continuity error because there's an established motif that is then completely changed with no explanation. Yep. Yep. Now, as far as continuity errors go, I remember as a kid watching the movie Gettysburg and wondering why several of the Confederate soldiers were wearing wristwatches. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anachronism is always fun. Yep. All right. Uh, so after taking after taking a night's rest uh, and sleep, the group decides they need to head to the Council of Amon, uh, mostly because they've been requested there. Uh, and on their way, they're going to stop to check in with Laura and let her know let her know that they've returned from Craghammer and have Akima in tow. Upon arriving at her doorstep, she stumbles into in, into the doorway, seeing people that you know very surprised to see that these people were here uh, and that they were back so soon. Um. She gave uh she gives each of them a hug, uh, although um one the one with Tiberius lasts just a little bit too long. Um and uh then notices Lady Kima behind them all. The two of them embrace tears streaming down their eyes, uh which sort of this this interaction sort of takes Tiberius back a bit. Um which I find was uh, I I find is sort of like a really good bit of storytelling. Just to, mm-hmm. I know we we just we just oh, yeah. sort of hit a bad bit of storytelling with the retconning, but and it's like this this character who's been sort of who has already previously shown that he's kind of obsessed with with Alora with this 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 mage lady, um, seeing her overly familiar with a person that he has been completely distrustful of for the past whole for the past several episodes. Um, is a, is a very nice little 
oh shit, I think I may have fucked up moment. I don't know that they extrapolate on it too much. They do a um, bit. They do. I mean, there's a reason that this episode is called is titled Shopping and Shipping. Yeah, well, no, I mean, um, specifically in this instance, I don't think that the, any of the other characters extrapolate on that. No, no, they definitely do. They definitely do, yeah. There's, there's a fair amount of like, oh. Oh, so that's how it is between Kima and Laura. And at well, that point, Matt is kind of like, no, no, they're they're good friends, guys, you know, yeah, because in friends. the narrative, that's what they are at that point, you know. Right, so, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But, but as well, far I, as. I, I mean, in character extrapolation, not mm-hmm. out of character reactions. <laughs> yep. Um, it's always hard to tell what's an in-character and out-of-character extrapolation in, in that sort of situation, depending on who's doing it. Because um, some of them did feel very much like in-character reactions. Uh, uh, Keyless, I think, stands out yeah, to me Keyless as one that was specifically particularly yeah. like, oh, okay, poor Tiberius. Um the other one's a little, a little bit blurrier of a line. <laughs> and at this point in the episode, I think we've had some great characterization moments. Um, stuff that jumps out at me. Percy's one-liner, which is a little bit hard to, to catch amongst everything else that's happening. But right before they head out towards Alora's t- tower, uh, and Percy being kind of the character of the one-liner, but he just goes, I've eaten, let's politic. Yes. And Which I absolutely really love that been, moment. <laughs> could have been the other the other title of this episode, right? Um, but you know, just just his his facility of <laughs> being a, a character of action, an individual that perceives that the needs of the situation will change from moment to moment, and he's he's adaptable uh in a great way uh i love the descriptions uh as they go into Alora's tower which we're just coming up on that point as well Mm -hmm. um as far as kind of your establishing shot setting description sort of thing brilliantly done Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, no i i only have a general overview here but but no Mm -hmm. the the matt matt in general has very good ways of sort of framing the camera uh, or, or framing the scene um, yeah. with with his descriptions, and I think that that that's one of the things that I feel probably makes him one of the better, uh, one of the more popular, I should say, uh, GMs currently doing the whole D and D streaming, uh, D, you know, uh, live theater almost version of D and D that we do, um, is that he it, he gets very very detailed when it's necessary in his uh framing and then glosses over other things to leave the mind to wander yeah uh, it's a very nice balance of show and tell um rather than too much of one or not enough of the other uh something that you know certain directors might be le- might learn from but uh yeah, no, he has a very cinematic style in terms yeah of how he how he presents scenes, and you see it just not just in scenes, or not in you know descriptions of, of, of settings or, or characters. You see it in his action, um, uh, how the fights unfold. That's what makes his makes the combat. I think. So, besides the fact that obviously this is D and D, and and D and D is in large part about the about the the fight scenes and and that sort of thing. He makes it really, really engrossing where 
Um, it, it's very easy to turn action in Dungeons and Dragons into a dice rolling scenario. Um, yeah. that's something I always have, a, have a harder time with. Um, he has a really good way of, of explaining it and presenting it in a way that looks exciting or, or looks in your mind's eye excited, I guess you should say. Well, and, and part of that is helped by when we're, when we're talking about people that stream D and D or do the, the sort of internet theater of D and D part of that is having all of his players in the same room with him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, and having the room to maneuver around. I know at least in, in, in my case, when I GM in real life, I tend to move around and, and mm-hmm. shift and wave my arms and things. Uh, whereas when you're restricted by a very narrow camera view, you have a much limited frame in which to work. Um, and there's so that, that, that certainly helps. It also helps that, you know, again, because his players are there with him, they're spatially aware of what he's doing and what he's indicating. And so it's easier to get across, uh, and also for the viewers at home, it's easier to get across what he's talking about and what he's describing because he uses his whole body oh, yeah. to indicate things. You know, he he does the 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 very nice like the 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 sound effects that he'll do are nice, but when paired with his body movements, is what really sells yep. the sound of an arrow thunk, into a wall. Uh, like you can get the idea of it from the sound, but just the the very precise movements help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh yeah, so uh they are invited into uh they're invited into Lady Laura's uh home for tea, uh which is where uh which is when we then get the uh sort of descriptions of Lady Kim's home and we discover a little bit about this because this I think this is the place where we learn that they stole the carpet from her previously. Yes. Um yes, that, which is a fun little awkward moment because they kind of. There's a moment where they're they're kind of trying to 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 hide it and to be sort of roundabout of oh yes we've got a car are you missing a carpet um, yeah. and then they finally come clean about it yep uh well yeah so they they come in they have a, they have a nice little bit of uh, social gathering uh, where Alora and Kima sort of explain a bit of their relationship to the group. Um, and they have tea, they basically chat over tea and then decide to go ahead and uh, move on to the council um, before they uh, to to discuss what has transpired uh, what's transpired over the over the past two weeks. Um, while they're there, uh, they also go over ways to potentially rid themselves of the horn of Orcas, but most of what they come up with will likely not work. Uh, and so they, they're sort of bouncing wall. They're bouncing ideas off each other and trying to come up with something mm-hmm. that'll that'll feasibly work. Uh, they then go on to the palace and meet with the council. Uh, here we meet Sovereign Uriel, uh, the uh, the ruler of Iman and Taldore. Um, the Riskel Doxel, the elf who is currently the master of trade within the city, um, and also the person who helped them purchase Grayskull Keep a year ago. Uh, Guardian Tofor uh, Barat Bratoris, a, a dragonborn paladin of Bahamut, <coughs> who greets Kima uh, kindly, but is very standoffish with Tiberius. And this is sort of the first time we really get to see not only does Tiberius rub the party the wrong way, but he also rubs other people the wrong way, although not for the same reason in this case. Right. right. Uh, yeah, and, and this sequence is great at you know, because 
we've talked before about how moving the party from the Underdark back to Amon expanded the lens of the world. Mm-hmm. This council meeting for me pulls it back yet one more degree. Yeah, you sort yeah, of see absolutely. the you sort of see the gears and ticking clocks behind right. the scenes. To, we that... start to see things like you know endemic social inequality in certain societies, and start hearing about other organizations. Not only the council, but I think this is one of the first times he's mentioned the Arcana Pensophical and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, and you're starting to get the idea that yeah, this is this is not just uh, we're seeing the bits of the world and everything that happens outside of it just isn't referenced or, you know, things are only made up when the GM says, Oh, well, you've got eyes on something. So I have to say something, Yeah, but there is, there is a ton of stuff happening in this setting that is all at least tangentially related or beginning to play into other aspects of this story that's been run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also, it's, it's a power reorientation because Uh up in the, the first, uh, uh, the first arc is these heroes on there and they are basically masters of their own domain even venturing into somebody else's but still same you know they are there is we have no cons- we have a nebulous idea that you know there's there's they are not the most powerful people in the realm right. um, but they but, but as far as the situation is concerned they are the final word yeah exactly um, at this point, once they come out and once they, they, they come to the council, all of a sudden we've established the power level above them, which is important, particularly when you're entering a new arc, to sort of uh, uh, reestablish uh, how things are because they've just come out <laughs> victorious against the, this, their, their great enemy for that arc. Now we have to sort of raise the stakes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also nice. It's something that I, I enjoy about this in particular. Uh, and this is sort of one of the things that really cemented me as a fan of this series and a fan of Matt's storytelling in particular is that this is a living and breathing world. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is part of how we're introduced to the fact that this world exists beyond the scope of Fox Machina. Right. Um, which is something I like to do when I create worlds as you two, both of you well know. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I love experiencing worlds that exist on their own from the perspective of a, of a, of an individual within it. Um, yeah. I, that's one of the reasons why I love the D and D standard settings, the uh, forgotten realms and Eberron and, mm-hmm. and, and plane shift uh, or plane chase. The, the, these, these places where, uh, there is already an establishment and you are here to basically run around doing your own thing within that established and setting. And make your world. mark. Exactly. You leave your mark on this place that exists. Yeah. Um, so the, the living, breathing nature of Exandria and of Taldora in particular, I find uh, to be very fascinating and, and, and a very nice... It's also one of those things that he does without too much effort, at least that we can see. Because it's it's very oh here are these people and here are their titles no going into like there's no deep like deep cut explanation as to what the master of trade does or what uh what what guardian means for for to for Bertorz's uh, name or uh that what the master of secrets is when they introduce Seeker Assume mm-hmm. or uh what Arbiter Brom actually does as a master of law they yeah. They don't go in. He doesn't go into detail about those. He just presents them, presents their name, 
And if there's any relevant information that the party doesn't know that they should know, then he gives that. Outside of that, it's up to them to find it. And that's a common storytelling pitfall, is where to find that balance of not enough information versus too much. Yeah. Uh, a lot of time, a lot of time, I think writers uh, lean too far into the over-explain because they have all these great grand ideas and they want to, they get, it's easy to get the idea that giving more information provides with a more immersive setting. Well, and also there's that personal motivation that I find when, you know, cause like, there are a ton of say NPCs in my uh, in my vampire game mm-hmm. on Saturdays that I have forcibly held myself back from right. finding and detailing to my players because they're not necessarily interested in interacting <laughs> with them directly at the moment. But for in my mind, you know, I did all the work to make these guys. I want to share it with somebody. You know, absolutely. Right? And that sort of that that actually provides me with with a really good segue because so for those who have ever read the. Um, the Vampire of the Masquerade clan novels. Um, Jack, I don't know if you've ever read those or not. I actually um, haven't. So, the, for the most part, they're a fairly good series. They, they, they take place during the, for those familiar with vampire mythology, they take place uh, 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 post-revised in meta plot. So they take place, they sort of explain why the gangrel left the Camarilla. And they sort of lead into sort of the time of trouble stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, but the first book is the is the is the Clan Toriador, and Anne Rice is another person who has a, pro- a big problem with this. There, that book has always stuck out of me as the perfect example of too much detail, too much everything, because they're trying to write it from the perspective of a Toriador, and a Toriador sees everything, you know, all of the detail and everything. Which is great, but it actually distracts from the uh, from the storyline because you have like f- four pages to get through about all the detail on this door, and and by the time you're done with, it, you're like, okay, where were we in the storyline? Yeah, um, that's something that I think can be really. That's one of those uh, uh, things that writers I think can. Uh, go too far with so it's always a, a definite art to know when to pull back and not share too much information until it's relevant if it ever is and it's a difficult balance to strike because you don't really learn until somebody has read it or until somebody mm-hmm. hears it um and so you're not sure what what seems like to what seems like too much information to you is maybe not enough information to others or right. what seems like not enough information to you is actually too much. Yeah. Um, I know, I, I know in, in particular, I have this tendency of, uh, of, um, going into not enough detail about the location and then potentially going into too much detail about the people. Right. Um, because that's, you know, that, that's sort of where my mind goes. And, and, uh-huh. and, and also because I already know the information about the location that you guys might need to know, but I don't realize it's that particular bit that you need to know versus the other way around. I've made these characters and they're really exciting and I want to share them and they're cool and all. Uh, and, but you just don't necessarily need to know all of that information. And I'm like, I just need a potion, Zella. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so having For to strike strongest that, potions. 
the 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 the, the the trick to striking that balance is sort of gauging the reactions of people. It's like you, you sort of watch as you're telling a story and when their eyes start glazing over, you realize you've gone too far. Uh, but when they're asking you 15,000 questions, you realize you haven't gone far enough. Yep. Um, all that to say, uh, you can definitely tell the experience of a storyteller by how much or little they flesh out their world. Um, and I think Matt does a very good job here of, of just giving just enough. Just enough that you can yeah. sort of read into it by the names that you're given, but not enough that you're explicitly stating everything. Uh, so yes, they meet uh, Sovereign Uriel. They meet R- Riskledoxiel, the Master of Trade. They meet Tofor... Bratoris. Bratoris. This is a difficult last name for me. I don't know why. <laughs> Tofor Bratoris, uh, the Dragonborn Paladin of Bahamut, um, uh, Seeker Asum, a halfling ranger and master of secrets, Arbiter Brahm Goldhand, a human male and uh, master of law, and of course there's also Alora here. Um, with introductions made, uh, Alora takes her seat at the large table and the rest of the group settles in, and at this point I think it's determined that Vox Machina is also a member of the council uh, for mm-hmm. events that have transpired prior to the game, prior to what we're seeing of the game. So we're also learning a little bit of backstory about Vox Machina, sort of where, not only that they're heroes, but also what they, what position they hold within this yeah. world. And also mm-hmm. sort of what got them there. There's references to Sovereign Uriel's corruption and how VM, you know, basically saved the day and solved the problem. Uh, on that sort of thing. And, but interestingly, though, I get the feeling watching this scene, they're members of the council, but they're sort of junior members of the council. Yeah. They're honorary members of the council. Or honorary. Yeah, yeah right. Where it's a little bit nebulous. They have a seat at the table, but they don't have nearly as loud a voice as the other people do. Yeah. Which is interesting, and something that I find in a lot of, uh, a lot of tabletop RPGs is it's fairly rare. I mean, especially at this point in the game, but really overall to find a game where you, where the, the players are and the protagonists are actually members of a sitting ruling faction, whether that's a government or a monarchy or whatever. And I think a lot of that is because that is usually a lot of administration and paperwork, and most players want to get out there and stab shit with swords. Um, but it is one of those things that has a level of absence that is interesting to me. Well, and I wanted it, to know what you guys thought. What I've what I've personally noticed is that it's not that there aren't very many settings in which you are the king of the castle or whatever. It's that there are a few settings where you're in that between space. Where you are the where where you are attached to power but not actually in power. Um, there are there there are a number of different stories where you are building a city or you're building a council or you're building a, a country or you are nobility and you are already a ruling like the ruling the ruling uh, class and you you know that's where you should get sort of like your political intrigue games uh, and campaigns that revolve around that sort of thing and then there's also the games where you have no power and you are sort of struggling against uh, those in power that's when you get things like Shadowrun where you're you're, you're shadow or and, and storm like that. Um, rarely do I find games that thread the line between, where 
you will be powerful people in this one location, but in another location you have absolutely no power whatsoever, or even in the location that you do have some amount of voice, it's not nearly enough to do drastic, you know, ratifying changes. Um, there are some. There, there, there aren't a lot, but uh, a major one that I think is is the first one that I think of when I ones where it's not it's not it's not necessarily the thing that people always do, but <coughs> excuse me, by definition, you are you are probably one of the voices at least. Not that you have control, but you're one of the voices for your tradition at the very least. Uh within whatever city that you're in. Um there is there there is potential depending on where you start in werewolf for that to be the case as well. Um but yeah there are I guess there really aren't a lot there aren't a lot where that that, that really is the case. Um and it it, it presents it will be in this a nice changeling game. <laughs> changeling is another one, actually. Changeling is one both uh both versions of it, even though I'm not a big fan of the old World of Darkness version, um, that really kind of makes that possible because yeah, it lends with old Changeling, you've got you've got the she and and the nobility aspects of it. Even if you're not going to be the leader of your particular um, court. Uh, court, or <laughs> or even your noble house within. You're yeah, at least going to have some sort of say. That that's actually one of the few ones that I could think of is where, and it's because in the the changeling, the way the courts are set up, uh, is that that there is no necessarily singular ruler of the court. There's a guy in charge, mm-hmm. but everybody has a voice, right? Um, because it's it's sort of that we're all in this together. Because if they come for one, if the fae come for one of us, they're coming for all of us. Uh, mentality, yep, and and that lends itself to that middle of the road. You have some power, but not all the power. But you're also not entirely unheard either. Mm. Uh, uh, Storylines yeah. that not a lot of other things really lean into, and and there's a, there's a reason for that. Middle of the road storylines aren't that interesting all the time. You never well, also, want to tell. You never want to tell the middle of the road. You want to tell an extreme one way or the other. It's difficult to do too. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to find that balance of if you do middle of the road, it's very easy for, for the stories to feel lopsided. At one point you're 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 ruling over and and, and uh controlling all these things, and then the next session all of a sudden you're the one that's powerless and it feels a lot like Whiplash sometimes. Well, and it's, it's a lot also like Game of Thrones is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, it's a lot like. <laughs> well, and it's also perfect. There's that, a perfect role. That's a perfect game. example. That's a perfect yeah. example of it. And, and because the biggest issue with it is that that kind of system relies on political intrigue and, mm-hmm. and like interpersonal conflict that you as the GM can't really control all yes. that much. Yeah. Um, which is part of why it's a not very often used. Oh, yeah, no, it's a, setup. it's a very complicated system to juggle. Yep. If you're if you're going to try and tell a, a a realistic and convincing storyline in that, yeah. So, 
as they sit down at the table and start talking about uh, council <laughs> business, they, uh, as they settle in, uh, Uriel dispatches a messenger to Lord and Lady Briarwood. Uh, at the mention of this name, um, Percy, um, Percy sort of sits up, and uh, I believe the audience is, as the audience, we've heard this name before. Oh we've yeah, every time in, in his, yeah. every time in his introduction, yeah, his, his introduction specifically calls out yeah. the Briarwoods. So right. the the audience and Percy as well sort of sit up and take notice because. Uh, Briarwoods, what's going on here? Is this is this a thing we need to know about? Is this the same Briarwoods? Um, Percy makes a mental note to ask about them uh, after the meeting, and uh, Uriel asks what transpires, and Vax gives them gives him a brief rundown of their encounters with the Illithid, Duragar, and Kavarn. Uh, the group decide that uh, the the council as a whole decides that the best way to handle the horn is to take it via guarded transport to the uh, Order of the Platinum Dragon in um, Vasselheim. Uh, thank you. Yep. In Vasselheim, uh, to shield to hope in the hopes that their combined uh, power would either destroy it or allow them to contain it and seal it away forever. Um, with the talk of the with the talk of Orcus, the folks at the table tend to get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, All the insight checks happen, and yes. insight <laughs> checks start happening, trying to figure out who wants what. Um, Arbiter uh, Arbiter Brom says that the horn should be held within the city and studied by the scholars of the Lyceum uh, instead of going to the Order of the Platinum Dragon. Um, Alora brings up the fact that she could, with permission, remove the location of the horn from everybody's memories. Um, as an added security precaution. As, as an added security precaution, uh, Uriel Uriel agrees with the idea of sending it across the sea to be deposed by the paladins, um, and he also thinks that Vox Machina should go along as added protection and precautions. Uh, he also tells them that upon their return, he will have some more work for them. Uh, so here's a question I have I regarding. Oh, go ahead. I, was like, I don't know that. I don't know if any other suggestions were put forward. Those are the only ones that I can remember. Was there anybody else have suggestions other than that, yes. those three things? Tiberius has one suggestion that he keeps throwing at everybody. Um and this sort of dovetails into my next question for your guys' analysis. You know, he's like, we should destroy it. We should destroy it. We should destroy it. Also we should destroy it. Or, you know, maybe guys, if possible, you know, we could think about maybe, you know, destroying it. Um, you know, after after Alora kind of told him that his destroying things in a bag of holding idea was not a good idea. Um, right. The, and, and as I was, as I was looking at the group dynamic here, um, it struck me that here was a situation wherein sort of from a meta perspective, Matt as the GM kind of knows that probably the, at least in his mind, cause it's his setting, probably the best way to handle a dangerous, you know, basically the, the fantasy version of a tactical nuke. Um, mm-hmm. The players, not being as familiar with the the setting, have their own ideas, and being individuals of initiative are very, very eager to act on those ideas. And there's this kind of conflict I see between either them having constant initiative and just saying, wait, we've got an idea, let's do this, let's see how it works out, this idea sounds good to us, or if they just took five minutes to sit down and let Matt have the meeting with them, they would have alternate perspectives and then be able to decide between them. Where do you think the balance between 
characters of constant initiative versus characters who default to a little more of a wait and see stance comes from a storytelling perspective. Man, I really wish we had Aaron in on this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, really. Because you just because you just asked the two people whose character default is to act on initiative. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. No, that that is entirely true. Um, so as as a player, yeah, I tend to be a lot more action. You know, move forward. Let's do this um, and see what happens out of it. Um, I realize that's not everybody's <laughs> best because other people care about their characters' existences. <laughs> um, but in terms from a narrative standpoint, you, ha- you have to have a little bit of both of that because if, you, if you're constantly moving forward and you're constantly just action, 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 then those times that you do stop to do character development or stop to, to uh, a set mood or theme or anything like that, it'll feel like this the train is just screeching to a halt and it doesn't it doesn't seem those are the moments in in serial storytelling where you hear people talk about it's poorly paced or the story bogs down at this point um if you find that proper balance between you know let's wait and let, let's let's figure out what's going on here you know have the research montage scene or or, or something like that then if you, if you keep that good balance along with the okay once we figured out what we're going to do let's move forward it feels a lot more natural yeah so there and you you also have the problem in the other direction though of having always being let's wait and see let's wait and see let's wait oh, and yeah. see, let's wait and see at which point you just suffer to lethargy and nothing ever happens oh yeah uh like where i have and i've seen groups of people be like sort of uh, uh um what's the phrase uh uh decision locked uh just this 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 Kind of stagnating. They, they have they have two decisions in front of them, and they're constantly looking for a third and not finding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will spend hours and hours upon time trying to cycle around to a correct to what they feel is the correct decision, rather than picking one, going with it, and then seeing and let, letting the chips fall where they may. Sometimes um, people take two episodes to get out of the city. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And 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 people and and sometimes people get bitchy at the guy who wants to just go because they want to sit around and talk about it for for the next three days. Um, or or sometimes <laughs> sometimes people spend the entire entire season at a farm instead of going out and killing fucking zombies. Exactly. None um, of these are based in real life or have any. Reflection in reality. Every, these are all completely on, hypothetical. These are all complete no reflection on television or other or other final show films, podcasts, or <laughs> anything at all. Um, but but so there there is there is definitely a need for balance, um, where you have people that are you know that 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 will you know switch gears from time to time, and most people will switch gears from time to time where they will they will go you know hey 
this is uh, I I have a certain motivation at this point that makes me really need to go forward and move forward and keep doing decisions because I have an internal clock of some kind. Something is driving me forward. Um, and there are other people that, that when they can't see that will instinctively pull back. And narratively, that's where you get that balance. You have someone who, like Tiberius in this instance, Tiberius is like, I'm scared as fuck of this object. We need to destroy it, destroy it, destroy it, destroy it, destroy it. And then you have other people in the group going, look, we don't know what's going to happen if we just try to fireball this thing into oblivion, chill out. Or put it, yeah, or the bag of holding trick. Yeah, um, um, and so there are, you know, like, like yeah, uh, putting a portable hole in a bag of holding might destroy it. It might also destroy all of us. Yes, um, or just eject it into some other plane Yeah, where... Any somebody who can reach that plane, which makes them all the more terrifying, can get it. Exactly. So there, there, there is a there's a there's a natural sort of balance that occurs when you have character motivations in place. Yep. Um, one character, and and I, to to use an example from our own podcast when we have with the Eberron game, when we have one character whose motivation is to protect the other characters, being driven forward by that motivation. He will constantly be that that uh, that proactive character. Go 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 go, and has to rely on the other characters to pull him back. Mm-hmm. When that specter of death has been removed, he can chill out, and somebody else can push the thing forward. Right, which is which is how you sort of cycle through. That's that's theoretically how you're supposed to cycle through. Uh, narrative arcs with somebody else taking the reins for a while, and then that other person that was the aggressor now being the more passive character in the background. Um, yep. And that's how you keep things fresh and natural because, again, not everybody is one thing all the time. No. Nobody is no like as 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 proactive and straightforward as I am in real life. I still have my times where I just want to sit back and chill. So, like, nobody is all one thing. Everybody has everything in them, and we balance each other. Yep. Cool. Was there was there something else you wanted out of that, Jack? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, we do have... So, uh, Tiberius is protesting to the side. Um, the meeting is adjourned, uh, and everyone gathers their items and notes and, and, and takes off as Percy le- lurks behind a bit, uh, waiting to speak with Uriel. Uh, he stops Uriel and asks about the Briarwoods, mentioning that they were in, uh, uh, Uriel mentions that they were in town a week ago, establishing trade routes between Whitestone and Amon, uh, having inherited the lands after the tragic passing of the Dorolo family. Uh, Percy asks that when they are next in town, if Uriel could contact him, managing to keep in check his own feelings about the, the, uh, the Briarwoods, uh, having now confirmed that, yes, indeed, they are those Briarwoods. Um, which I find is sort of, and this is one of those scenes for me, uh, which is, it's kind of a, um, like it's sort of a film out of like a detective movie or a scene out of like a, out of like a detective movie where there's the, the character that knows more than he's letting on just getting mm-hmm. confirmation in a very naturalistic way, but with yeah. the audience knowing there's an ulterior motive here. Yes. No. And yeah, it's, it, it, it's it's got a very it's sort of great. Cold War-ish, vaguely film noir kind of, yeah. Yeah, and it's great, obviously, plot-sitting, too. 
Yep. Uh, and, 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 and in this case, it's, it's sort of plot seeding placed, uh, put together by a player. Yeah. Uh, which, which I want to take a minute to talk about uh, uh, sort of uh, group narrative storytelling. Because this, mm-hmm. is, this, I think, is probably one of the first examples of a really good uh, bit of group narrative storytelling. Where mm-hmm. at this point, we really can see that the story isn't just being told by the GM. It's yeah. also being told by the characters, and this is a bit. This is this is Percy proactively, not being prompted by anything other than the information being presented, going forward and saying, "Hey, let me know about this information when yeah. it comes up again." Which, to be fair, that I mean, it 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 is a nice combination on both parts of Matt throwing that out there in sort of almost an aside. And then Talison picking up on it and saying, "Okay, well, this is where you're wanting to go. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I am yeah. going to pick up that thread that you just dropped, and we will, we will follow where this leads." Well, and that's uh, and that's that's what I mean by the group thing because yeah. it, uh, the the plot hook was thrown out and could have been left alone. Yes, yep. no, absolutely. And as a as a DM, it is it, you throw out so many of those that get missed on a regular basis yep. that when it happens, it's it's so satisfying. Um, uh, something that actually has happened in 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 the Eberron game. Uh, not to not to go too deep. But watch all the other Final Show films or listen to the other all the other Final Show film stuff. But. Um, <laughs> For like most of the first arc, I I had thrown out some uh, a, a few things here. This map that they had uncovered, and 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 a couple other things, and those kind of got the the party recognized them, and then was busy with this other stuff. So I thought that stuff had all been you, know, you guys hadn't really had had forgotten them at some point, uh, which I was fine with. I could you know ways I could weave it back in um and then once you guys were done with essentially the first chapter i'm like okay well i need to come up with something to sort of sort of build them you know the the next arc spent time plotting stuff for the next session and then you guys are like so what about this map <laughs> um, <laughs> which was amazing. I loved it, and it because it, it was one of those times where the the players act, you know, that group storytelling dan but dynamic works. It means that there was about three hours of other stuff that I'd worked on that isn't going to happen, but that's okay. Just just right. see yeah, it in elsewhere. That's all. Right, yeah, because, exactly. Because as a storyteller, when when the audience or the players rise to the bait that you've thrown out there, it doesn't matter whether you threw it out three weeks ago or three minutes no, ago. It, getting a getting a bite on that bait feels good. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, like like a mysterious book that talks back to the people that write in it or that that open it up and talk to it. You know, things like that. Hey, not everybody has Fakir's will saves. <laughs> Fuck that book. Oh, such a great book. Don't read the book. <laughs> no one will ever look at Bang magical books the same again. <laughs> but yeah, and the entire situation was just, yeah, because Percy could have reacted several different ways to it. And he he chose, and I think that this is something of his training as an actor as well, 
he chose the most directly engaged method. You know, he could have heard Briarwoods and immediately clamped down, put on his refrigerator face, and then went and panicked to everybody once they were out of the palace. Oh shit, we gotta, we gotta duck and cover. Right. But I think Taliesin is an experienced enough actor to know that while that's an option, generally you get a much better story by saying, oh, here's my past coming back to call. I'm going to answer the fucking door. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, and without that, future story arcs might have panned out in a very, very different manner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's always a good, that's always a good, like, like I said, that's why I wanted to highlight this as a, as a mm-hmm. group narrative storytelling moment, because that, that's proactive a very, characters are awesome. very good character story moment. Proactive Thank you. I like proactive are... characters. Yes. <laughs> I play them. Yes, you do. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, I don't, I don't like being reactive. So, uh, anyways. Well, actually, and actually, before we move on, that's actually a good thing to to side to sidebar into proactive versus reactive characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they they both have a purpose, and, and I know we're, yeah. we're like proactive characters are awesome, but reactive characters are also you know in their own right uh, uh, required and and good characters. This and so let's let's define proactive versus reactive characters. A proactive character is somebody who actively moves forward and actively seeks out whatever the problem is or whatever the solution they need is. Moves forward, find, tries to find the answer <laughs> while constantly in motion. If you imagine a perpetual motion machine, that's pretty much a proactive character. Mm-hmm. Um, proactive characters in a bad sense or taken out of balance can be yeah. considered impetuous or reckless. But yes. Because they're moving, they're, but they're constantly moving. Yeah. Yes. yes. And And... Yeah, uh, they can also be considered bold and courageous on the, in the more right. positive, positive sense. Side, there are yeah. these. Yes. Whenever you have a character described as any of those, negative or positive, they tend to be a proactive character, um, both heroes and villains. Uh, and reactive characters are ones that stop, analyze, think, uh, and and make decisions before acting, rather than making decisions while acting. These are people that are uh, timid, shy, but also. <laughs> careful and cautious um people that are uh, (laughs) not necessarily considered not necessarily considered inquisitive inquisitive i feel is more of a proactive quality but aren't afraid to answer the questions that they find first um they tend to be a little more contemplative they're they're more introspective right when they're confronted with the problem their immediate response is wait and see a little bit more and no. in that case, the problem sort of <laughs> comes to them, and then they gather more information before figuring yeah. out what they're going, their response is going to be. Now, there is a tendency to... <coughs> excuse me. There's a tendency to lump these characters into introvert-extrovert categories, yeah. but they're not... Which isn't you always. Don't, you don't necessarily have to be an extrovert to be proactive. You don't necessarily have to be an introvert to be reactive. It all not, depends not all. on the situation and on what you personally are getting out of it. Um, yeah. Go, yeah, go, like, well, yeah, going back to something we referenced earlier, your classic film noir detective tends to be somewhat proactive, but frequently an introvert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, uh, the, the classic Bogart character right. tends to go that way. Yeah. They're they're actively going out and seeking the information, but all all of all of their characterization is internal. They don't spend time with other people. They 
uh, they they sort of have their own story that they're telling by themselves. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's seen as a sign of conflict for them when another character comes in and tries to help them be proactive. Right. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where you that's where you get the uh, that's where you get the um, uh, the the uh, I can't think of the the stereotypical line, but the uh, that woman walking into my office uh, set of dialogue that, that oh, right, stems yeah. from, from of all the yeah. of all the yeah from <laughs> not, the, all the gym not, joints and all the bars no, in the world. Not that one because not that is Casablanca a reactive line? character. Not the Casablanca <laughs> line. Oh no no no! Yeah, because that's about, a reactive line. That that's a reactive, a reactive line. character. Well yeah, because yeah. Rick is definitely more of a reactive yeah. No, I'm talking. Oh, yeah. I'm talking. It's a it's a Bogart it's a Bogart line where he's describing and it's it's been parodied often where he's describing the woman coming into his office. Right. Yep. Um. And and he's doing it all internally, and 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 you know, saying you know she looks she looked like trouble with a capital T, like that yeah. that kind of uh, that kind of line. Whereas flipping it to reactive, sitting there at my desk with a yeah. loaded forty eight. Uh, flipping I'm just to a, throwing a reactive numbers now. a reactive character, uh, mm-hmm. which would be Rick from yep. Casablanca. Yes, absolutely. Um, where Rick has already I stick has my neck out for nobody. Exactly. I I I. He already has his life set set in place. He's good. His problems are solved. And then, of all the gin joints and all in all the towns, she had to walk into mine. And this old flame of his comes in and wrecks his life. Yep. Uh, and so that is an example. That's a classic archetypal example of a reactive character who is an extrovert. Rick is very much an extrovert. He he runs a gin joint. He's friends with his musician. He's he's he knows most of the people that come in on a first name basis. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's very much going out and shaking hands and smiling and talking and chatting. And then this lady comes in and brings all of this emotional baggage he had previously dealt with back into his life. Um. And so those are just two examples, Bogart and Rick, of two different types of uh, proactive, reactive. Sam Spade and Rick. Introvert, extrovert. Yes. Sorry, Sam Spade. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart. Bogart, Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, Bogart was the actor. Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, Bogart was the actor. Um, although, although, although he also fits the 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 proactive introvert too as a as an individual. Oh yeah, no, yeah. he was yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so th- th- those are those are just two examples, and. You want to have a mix of those. Yes. And you really, you want to have a mix of them in general in the characters, um, within the characters themselves. Somebody who's proactive all the time is, as, as we said before, is problematic. It's very easy for those characters. If, you, if you're only ever proactive, it's very easy for those characters not necessarily to get the opportunity to um, uh, let you see the impact that 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 major plot developments have, yeah, um, because because they don't stop long enough, and you see a lot of um, a lot of action films tend tend to fall into this problematic element where the big moments happen. But they're too big. The, the 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 thrust is okay. Get to the next action scene or get to the next next plot development. So the character isn't able to register that. Hey, this is a major thing that just happened. Whereas if you're reactive all the time, your story isn't going anywhere. Yeah. 
So. Uh, so, back into the uh, story at hand. Um, <clears throat> after dis- uh, dealing with the council meeting, um, the group get together outside of the outside of the uh, uh, area that they've been in and are just while discussing uh, their 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 next plan uh, their plan to, to move while they're waiting for the vessel being designed to carry the horn of orcas to be ready uh, they decide that they need to go ref- replenish their supplies and visit their friend Gilmore the proprietor of Gilmore's glorious goods uh, yep, and we we get introduced to one of the long lasting uh, best NPC character uh, in, in air quotes because not everybody likes Gilmore, but most people do. Um, oh yeah, very very Cole. broad appeal on this guy. There are uh, people that don't. There are people that like Gilmore, and there are people that are wrong. <laughs> no, we don't want to make. <laughs> I'm such, joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Such rash assumptions. <laughs> although I I do tend to agree. Um, <laughs> But 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 that's but, unanimous. Yeah. So so yeah, we, we we go to Gilmore's glorious goods, and uh, arriving at the store, the group walks in and rings the bell, summoning Gilmore. Shocked and thrilled to see him, the merchant welcomes them back from Craghammer, uh, communicates with them a bit, and 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 we get to know a little bit about Gilmore. So we learn that Gilmore is a merchant that they've worked with previously, and as I recall, was it prior to this episode, or was it this episode where they did a merchandising deal with him? It was prior to this episode. They had had the sponsorship already. Yes. So yeah. So prior to this, prior to this uh, episode, they had haggled uh, Gilmore into basically saying, "Hey, look, if you give us some stuff on a discount, uh, we will spread the word of Gilmore's glorious goods uh, to to near and far, to all and sundry." And as we, the audience, have come to learn, they did not do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, no, they they did reference it very in in I think the first episode when they were the first or second episode when they were trying to buy something in Craghammer. I yeah, don't I remember it the, what it was. I think it was at the uh the, the magic shop that was run by the elf. Yeah. But um very briefly, but it was mentioned. But but yeah, they 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 haven't been as good at it as they intended to be. We'll I mean, to be to be fair, I don't think that Kavarn was interested in 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 buying in from Gilmore. Right <laughs> no, no, certainly not. But uh, but but uh, the, you know, we we learn a little bit about Gilmore, who is a, a apparently a very friendly character, um, and we also learn a little bit about a little bit more about our characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vax, sensing an opening, asks Gilmore out to lunch, and without missing a beat, the two of them leave. Um, so. Let's talk shipping. I mean, it's half the title of this episode. Let's let's talk shipping because let's... we have two major shipping moments in this episode. Uh, we have the, the was referenced earlier the the Kima moment, which inspired a ship, um, and the Vax Gilmore scene, which it was is one of the more popular ships in the. Um, and the critical, uh, the the critter fandom. And just in um, case one of the probably twelve people in the world listens to this podcast that doesn't know what shipping is, you want to explain it to him, Jeremy? Shipping is uh, it. The term comes from relationship. It is uh, uh, taking the the two characters that, or or three, or however many that you see. Typically, although it, it doesn't always have to be. 
typically that that you pair up as these are the characters that you would like to see together in a romantic sense. It doesn't always have to be romantic. Sometimes it's uh, more of a bromance ship or uh, sisterly ship or something like that. Now, but almost every ship that is referenced tends to be in a romantic way. Now, before we continue, I just want to I just want to gauge the the waters here. Are the two of you? I know one of you already, but are the two of you for or against the concept of shipping as a whole? Jeremy? I am, I, I'm a definite shipper. Um, I do, I, the shipping, <laughs> I, I, I'm a shipper, but that being said, I, I think that you have to do it in a way that is or that you should do it in a way where if your ship doesn't happen, it should not be the end of the world for you. Um, I, I, I ship a lot of my, a lot of the, the, the IPs that I love. Um, and some of them work out. Some of them don't, some of them I know aren't going to work out because they're strictly head cannon kinds of things and implies pairings that are probably never going to and could never happen um so i i don't know maybe maybe that makes it a little easier for me to say okay well if um for example uh if somber and symmetra never happen i'm okay with that um (laughs) even though it would be amazing um but you know, shipping has its good and bad points, which is sort of what I was, where I figured this is going to go. All right, Jack. Um, for me, shipping is one of those things that once I became aware of it, I realized that it's probably a fundamental human reaction to any sort of character-driven mm-hmm. narrative. Um, so I'm not really for it or against it. It's more just like kind of like a fact of nature to me. Um, you know, and. Any time that an audience critically engages in the conduct uh, or critically analyzes the conduct of various characters in any sort of uh, work of fiction, eventually, if relationship choices are made in the narrative, those are going to come under scrutiny as well. You know, you still have people who would live or die on whether or not Harry should have ended up with Cho or Hermione or Ginny or whoever, you know. Um, (laughs) Or Snape. Or Snape, right, which is creepy and yes, weird and abusive damn and horrific. It is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't, don't get me started on what a shitbird character Snape is. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, I would say I would say it's it's not something that I think any creator could legitimately expect an audience to not engage in. Um, and given the sort of culture that we live in where 90% of the people out there are fairly obsessive about just relationships in general, let alone romantic ones. Um, There is a huge push internally from our collective psyche on, and how it's developed and learned to look at people and how they interact to, if somebody's not in a relationship, assume that, well, they probably should be. And therefore it's a very short logical jump to okay if they should be in a relationship then with who 
or with how many people or which of these people or why this person would be better than that person, you know. And then, of course, all the uh, factors of orientation and polyamory and that sort of thing can, can age to, and... to crop up. And right. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And and it's a it's a very interesting thought exercise for a lot of people as well. Uh, given especially the importance, as I said, that our culture and society put on your relationship status uh, as an individual, real or fictional. Um, so I don't engage in it terribly heavily myself. Um, if somebody brings one up, I can generally factor an opinion on it. And <clears throat> But at the same time, I'm a huge fan of respect for the creator. Right. When, you know, when, when Joss Whedon says, you know, Buffy and Angel should have been together, in my opinion, I take that as word of God and I say, all right, my own opinions on Spike aside or anybody else's, this is what the creator, the one who came up with these characters, who ostensibly and can fairly justifiably say he knows them better than anybody else, says this is the, in air quotes, right choice in this setting That's at that point I'm, right at that point i'm like all right you know yeah no maybe maybe i'm looking at it differently or he knows things that i don't know or something of that sort you know but at that point i am quite willing to say okay yeah no that totally makes sense and like jeremy says from a story perspective uh you know author's word is law pretty much and you have to be okay when your ship doesn't happen when and as an author when people second guess my work especially on a subjective matter, like whether two people like each other or should like each other or not, that feels a little presumptuous to me. And so I don't want to impose that on other creatives. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a really rambling and detailed. That's fine. Vaguely academic so, analysis so, of the concept of shipping. So, so it's not, it, it is not time for, for me to lose all 12 people that, that, that listen to this podcast. Um, because while I understand it from a sort of fantasy wish fulfillment perspective, um, and, and I understand why shipping occurs, personally, I find shipping to be inherently disrespectful, um, to be inherently uh, presumptuous and disrespectful to the source material and to the creators of the source material, because it is by its very nature saying... I know how to write your story better than you do. Um, by, by saying these two characters should be together, regardless of the narrative in place, regardless of the narrative planned, and regardless of what you have written or will write, you're saying, I know these characters better, they should be with this person, this is the relationship they should be in. And that disregards things that you don't or can't know things like sexual orientation or preference or whether or not this is a person that even wants to be in a relationship asexual people are a thing mm-hmm. um uh and people that don't want to be in relationships or don't see the purpose of relationships um and it, it's sort of a it's it's commandeering the narrative for your own personal gratification, gratification. Being, yeah. sexu- being it being sexual or otherwise and ignoring the work that's already been put in and that is going to be put in by the author and by the people portraying those characters in certain ways 
which is why like i i personally so got two ends of the spectrum and once again i'm yeah. sitting in the middle <laughs> <laughs> so i personally i personally and i don't think that people who ship are bad people i think that the practice itself is bad and i personally don't like it i That's... understand why it happens i understand why people do it but i don't like it <laughs> so i i understand that standpoint I think that is, I think that's assuming that everybody who ships takes that I know better than you standpoint, which is, in my experience, most people, yes, there are a lot of people like, these are the people who, who this is the way it should be. In my experience, most people are, these are who I would like to see together. Yeah. And, which, and is, that's... which is, no, which is different than, this is the way that it should be. Those are two entirely different statements. That, yeah. And that's fine. My, my, my stance is on the concept of shipping as a whole. Right. Because even if your intention is not to say, this is how it should be, this is how I would like it to be, that's still imposing your ideas on somebody else's writing. Even Anybody if it's not meant to, even if it's not their own ideas, in a in a <laughs> far more in a far more in a far more direct way than just reading it and taking it and internalizing it. This is this is this is not reading it and internalizing it and then coming up with your own read on the subject matter as a whole. This is reading it and then externalizing your opinions on the relationships of two characters that have already been written. Um, and, and again, this is, this is something I fully, I fully don't expect people to agree with me on because no, no. And it, it, it's fine. <laughs> I just, I, I literally don't see the difference between those two things you just said. And, and maybe you don't, but I do. Uh, and, that's fair. and, and that's where opinions are based. <laughs> opinions are based in your yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, and like I said, I fully expect people to not agree with me on that. Mm-hmm. I just find shipping as a concept to be inherently disrespectful. Um, it just by its very nature. And I've always, I like, I, 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 it's always given me sort of like a, a skeevy feeling, especially when, <laughs> especially when you see things like, you know, uh, I think the, the, the classic example of a, of a shipping thing that, that, that I first sort of got into was, uh, was very much, uh, Harry Potter actually. Um, uh, the, that my first sort of in my first sort of insight into that sort of, uh, culture was people going, Oh, Harry should be with Hermione. Oh, Harry should be with Hermione. Oh, Harry should be with Hermione. They're fucking 12. (laughs) (laughs) They are goddamn, they are 12 years old. Okay. (laughs) Harry probably doesn't even know how to masturbate yet. That is a valid point, but I would argue that those people's, the the issues that those people have... uh, is not the shipping. The issue is something <laughs> entirely different. These are the same people who ship the, the, the who ship the Winchesters for Christ's sake, or <laughs> you know, or who do legitimately ship Harry and Snake. But, and it's and 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 yeah, but that's that's another thing, and and that might be a separate topic for a different episode. But yeah. Is it not the is it or is it not the responsibility of the society as a whole to acknowledge the actions of those that do take it too far? 
and oh, to yes, acknowledge uh, yes. a, a level of responsibility for for, your, for for that. That's that like it is your responsibility yeah. to call that out as problematic. Yeah, it's not your responsibility to say I accept that this is an inherent problem with what I with, with what I personally do about it. Yeah, and like I said. Uh, yeah. not, not I, I'm definitely in the minority on the internet opinion scale in this in this particular thing, but and I'm fine with that because it just feels skeevy to me. And that may have something to do with growing up in the South and having Southern grandmothers always trying to pair you up with every other girl you oh, meet. Okay, yeah, like, that, yeah, that is yeah. totally fair. <laughs> it may it may been... also stem from that. I guess I've always come from it from a standpoint of, and maybe it's my like fairly lazy, fair sort of attitudes towards it of acknowledging that yes, this is this is my head canon. You know, I I like these characters. I would like to see them together, but I have so zero problem with it if they don't end up together. Yeah, um, where I know a lot of people are far less reasonable. That. <laughs> yeah. Yes, my grandmothers were all far less racist about that. Believe me, those people <laughs> drive me insane. Uh, okay, stepping off shipping now. Uh, yes. uh, we actually do want to while while we're here, not on the shipping aspect, but we do want to talk about representation. Uh, yes, for, for just a little bit well, because uh, this is this is. I think the first time we've ever really talked about sexual identity in in a in a in an in an in an episode of Critical Role specifically? Yes, absolutely. Um, because we have Kima and Alora, who are, at this point, very good friends. Uh, and then Vax, who we don't really... who, As far as the audience is concerned, right now, this is the first time Vax has ever shown any sort of sexual attraction towards anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same with Gilmore. So it does kind of tie into shipping... Um, in some way, but representation of thing of of things that you are not in your storytelling. Um, we've recently had several conversations about this, about how there are there are certain camps of people that feel you should only write what you know, and then there are other camps of people saying that you should write everything that you're not, and then there are yet other camps of people that think you should write whatever you feel like and just try to incorporate as broad a spectrum of people as you can. So, um, yeah. So, I, well, I, as I've pre- stated previously on previous episodes of this show, I think <laughs> I believe you should write what you know, but that means get out there and make sure you know everything. Right. Yes. Like <laughs> if you if you literally only write what you know, you're going to be writing some goddamn dull stories. Right. Yep. Um, because there's going to be it's going to be populated by nothing but whatever your particular gender identity, sexual identity, uh, uh, racial identity. Right. Yeah. And um, and so, uh, is a question, an interesting question that I, that I have for you guys talking on the subject of representation. Um, so in this conversation that I've had previously with, with, with many people, it's, this has, this isn't a recent conversation. This conversation I've had over many years Mm -hmm. talking about, um, uh, nominally white people. I hate the term white people, but I'm going to use it because it helps. It, it fits in the statement. Nominally, right. nominally white people portraying characters that are not white. 
in, my in, opinion on in, that in RPG in our in an RPG sense. My opinion on that would say it depends on your setting and the context in which it's being done. Um, and there's there's two primary uh, sort of role playing game systems that we talk about on this channel a lot, and I'll just reincorporate those in D anD. d It's a fantasy setting. There are multiple just races, let alone ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issues in those settings are frequently drawn across actual racial boundaries, less so than ethnic boundaries. And for those D&D. listeners, right, like races being, you know, dwarves hate elves, not slightly darker people are mistreated by slightly lighter people. Yeah, know, in, in, like in, D&D, in D&D, it's it's not that you're playing a black person, you're playing a human whose skin is brown. Right, exactly. I mean, ethnicity I, comes into play with things like drow versus... Right. There versus, are some places but where ethnicity does come into play. For the know, most and, part. But for the most part, you know, yeah, if I would, I would say, given the context and setting of the scenario, I would have a lot less issue with a white person playing a drow than say world of darkness where world of darkness's setting is literally this world that we live in mm-hmm. just with lots of supernatural shit and everything is worse um right. and so you can you can you can port over a great deal of things that you see in real life and real locations and places and historical events into that setting and in that case i would say it is far more problematic for me for a white person to say well i want to play you know a, a black werewolf okay now i'm oh, sorry so, jeremy you first yeah yeah so and i was gonna use the i was i was gonna use early darkness example too i've done it um particularly i tend to like Partially because one of my favorite clans is Ravnos. I tend to play... I, I have played more Roma, uh, uh, Roma, Romani, than other other non-white races. Um, although Romani, there's... They can be they can be Caucasian as well. And, 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 but and, and just 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 so that we're clear on our di- on our termage, let's let's say non-white ethnicities. So we're not yes. we're not doing the like dwarves, elves, because we are talking about right. D&D and World of Darkness. Exactly. Um, but the key there for me was uh, and and where it initially came from of me starting to really play. So there's a problem with the World of Darkness, and a lot of people don't really address this. <laughs> but the world of darkness, ever most of the games inherently present their factions in ethnicities, in ethnic yes. stereotypes specifically. Mm-hmm. Werewolf is the worst about this. Yes. Um, you have the 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 Black Furies is probably the the one that drives me the most insane. Um, first the first tribe in the book. Um, Vampire is a little bit better about it until you get to Clan Ravnos. And like the Asimites. Um, Asimites, yeah, Asimites too. Um, 
followers of Snake. Ravnos always sticks out to me, not only because they're my favorite clan, but because White Wolf published a book uh, called World of Darkness Gypsy. Uh, which, which is, for those of you who are not aware, in like 90% of the English-speaking word, gypsy is gypsy an ethnic is a slur. slur. <laughs> yes. For some reason, in the United States, it's not, and we they, use it all the time, but it's right. super offensive. To the point the that the I felt dirty saying the book title. Yes. Um, it is a ridiculously offensive <clears throat> book. It is one of the worst books they ever made. And I'm including the 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 the, the true handbook in that. Are you including um, the Are you including the parody Black Dog publishing book that they made? They made several Black Dog books, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm including several of those. I will also say that Black Dog Black Dog has one of the best books they ever made in Carnal Houses, <laughs> um, which deal which is a wraith book that deals with um, uh, uh, the the. Um, uh, Holocaust camps. Uh, it sounds like something that would have been a nightmare in terms of problematic stuff, but it's actually really good. Anyways, so I remember reading the 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 World of Darkness book, and even me at twenty something, knowing absolutely almost nothing about Roma culture. Being just hideously offended by it. Um, and that drove me to say, well, I want to try and play characters who are, I want to try, because I still love this clan, but I want to play characters who are better than what this book presents. Now, I did that by becoming very educated about the culture. So I wasn't portraying them as stereotypes. And that is. If you're going to do this, and you know, obviously, as when you when you get into a point where you're running stuff as a storyteller, as a DM, if you don't want your if you don't want your your games to be erasing entire ethnicities, you're going to have to play those types of. You're going to have to play characters that are other than what you are. Yeah. Um. So once you've done that, once you've gotten to the point where where I think you you've you figure out how to play these characters as more than stereotypes. It's a little less problematic, but it is still a minefield that you have to be very very careful about. So yeah, and and as a as a storyteller, erasure I believe is the bigger priority. Yeah. Whereas as a player, appropriation or whatever the the more relevant term might be mm-hmm. in there would be the the larger issue that's my perspective anyway go ahead so John. to flip it because i like to make brains do backflips uh-huh. what about my buddy camille mm-hmm. he's black he's a great guy yeah he plays white people a lot <laughs> this is where we're gonna we're of... gonna drive the other four of our listeners <laughs> so for um, me, this for me, this is where the concept of dominant ethnicities yes. and dominant culture comes in. Yes, that's. I mean, I play a lot of the characters that I play are straight, um, and I'm not. So that's a lot more acceptable to me than somebody who. 
is straight who doesn't have any concept. And again, this is about if you if you can play it tastefully, I feel like if you can play it tastefully, you're good. A lot of people I've known can't. Yeah. Um but it, it, yeah, dominant culture versus versus the I hate using the term but minority. Um it is a lot more acceptable for somebody of the of the non-dominant culture to play the the dominant culture type. And you know, cuz I mean for me, like it or not, I live in a culture where for myself as a straight white male, there are far fewer barriers to whatever it is that I want to accomplish in place in a in a general sense um mm-hmm. you know the system is slanted towards my benefit because the system was designed by straight white men right. um and for me to then assume that i have the understanding and in, and capacity to impersonate someone from a more disadvantaged place in in life than myself is inherently presumptuous in the in the public perception of a great many people and there's there's a lot of sensitivity and consideration that would have to go in for that um and that's something i've been struggling with over the past few weeks because my next changeling game is going to be set in baltimore baltimore is like two-thirds black people right and so i can my two choices are either well uh, you know, pretend that black people don't exist, which would be horrific and stupid, um, or find a way to tastefully and respectfully incorporate black characters into this narrative and portray them as the storyteller in a way that's not going to feel appropriative, disrespectful, stereotypical, or, you know, uh, or mocking in any sense to, uh, to, individuals of that ethnic background um you know and so i'm I'm having to sort of wrap my brain around the best way to to handle that situation whereas if an individual of a different ethnicity who has had those imperative struggles imposed on them by living in this american society that we have today decides that they're going to portray a white person there there's not the same level of pressure there because in that case they are looking at at interacting with an audience and and their players in a way where they are portraying an individual who has more privilege than they do mhm and and it's all and when Sorry. somebody has more – basically, humans have this concept of fairness, and we all understand what it's like to be treated unfairly. And when you are systematically treated unfairly, it's – there's this sort of common consensus that if you make a joke of the people who are treated more fairly or better than you, you are in a position of safety because your real life is – worse than theirs is well, and it's, so it's, in your it's the, pretend it's the comedy, life it's it's right. the comedy concept of punching up not down right yes. yes punching up not down thank you that's the term i was looking for yeah well and it's also 
when you're talking about dominant culture versus non-dominant culture, the dominant culture also controls the pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are, if you're black or if you're <laughs> trans or, or non-binary or um, uh, bisexual or whatever the case may be, you are exposed primarily to uh, pop culture and culture that is the dominant cultures in nature. So you are inherently more educated on what that is like. It's a lot easier to understand what that sort of standpoint is. Whereas the non-dominant cultures all Ten, the, the representation that you see typically at this point it's not as bad in terms of stereotypical even 10 years ago it would have been it would have been another story but there's so little of it that you simply don't have many many cultural touchstones to go off of if you are if you're trying to portray those and looking for examples of of what the proper way to do so is. So now it's my turn. And I, the, reason I let, the reason I let you guys go first is because I'm, I'm going to drop a bomb on our audience here and let you all know that I'm not white. I know I sound white and I look white, but I'm not actually white. I'm Italian and Cuban. And mm-hmm. the Cuban's important because while I look more Italian... I only have to go so far as one of my cousins to know somebody to to have personally been in the presence of people while having the word spick thrown around. Now, right. I, I, want, I want to talk about racial slurs real quick because I'm always confused by why Cubans are called spicks and Mexicans are called wetbacks because we're the ones that fucking swam. <laughs> 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 my grandfather came over here on a goddamn boat, okay? Wait a minute. That he made out of a truck. Are you my, try, are, my my grandfather turned a pickup truck into a boat and came to Miami. Now, now just just so that y'all listening know, when I say right. I'm Cuban, I'm not like oh no, like fifteen like fifteen relatives passed and like three like three cousins over. I'm Cuban. No, my my motherfucking grandfather is Cuban from the island over the water to Miami. All right. Yep. <laughs> Are you saying that you expect you expect your ra- you, you expect the racism to be properly educated on the terms I, I want I, 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 I want you to at least I want you to at least use some motherfucking language that makes sense. All right. Like, <laughs> like, like my my, yep. my 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 Mexican brothers come over a a, a river, like a, a, not even a river, a stream, a creek. They get their ankles wet. You want to talk about people that that swim? That's my people. All right. Well, they, they, <laughs> they used to have to swim the Rio Grande, but then Southern California sucked all the water out of right. the Southwest. <laughs> and anyway, that, 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 that's a bit of levity because it's a very serious subject, you see. But, right. but the point is that I'm, I, while I look white, I am not what, I would, what, what you would nominally consider white. Right. And so I've got a little bit of a different perspective. Not only that, because I've also, I grew up east of Atlanta, and the area that I grew up in you walk down the street and I have my Bosnian brothers. I've got Armenians. I've got some Russian families. I've got some Slavic fam, some some other Slavic, uh, Slavic national families. 
Uh, I've also got Hispanics, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans. Uh, um, I've got Italians, Germans, Greeks. I've got Irish. I've got Scottish. I've got African, true African. I've got African Americans. I got South Africans. I got Egyptians. I got Middle Eastern folk from from all all the different countries in the Middle East. And you got all, every damn thing. Sir. And all at base and, and some and some folks from India as well. Actually, India and Native Americans as well. Um, and and all at basically the same economic level, which is fuck poor, um, and all interacting on the same level, based like 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 I'm living the American dream, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> we're all the same, broke. Uh, um, and and it's this weird thing for me where people say white culture, and I go, which one? Bosnian, Armenian. Russian, European, like like English, Scottish, Irish, American, redneck, uh, Italian, Greek, Roman, like 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 Roman, which is different from regular Italian, um, Sicilian, which is different from regular Italian, like 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 which white culture? Um, and so it, this 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 the the perspective of the dominant culture from my angle is different it's not uh-huh. white culture it's hollywood culture uh it, it, which is because folks i know out here don't act like folks over in hollywood um and and the same way so it's it's always been very weird for me and i've never had a problem with people playing different races from what they are because i think that not only are all stories valid, but all perspectives on that story are valid. My perspective as a Cuban on the story of a, of the Italian side of my family is just as valid as the other way around. Um, and my perspective as a Cuban on my buddy Camille's perspective as an African-American is just as valid as his perspective is on mine. Um, and if we and failing to explore those perspectives inherently builds a wall through which we cannot communicate. Um, it, it's and, and I understand that the wall is being put there for sensitivity's sake, but when you go, when you say things like, you shouldn't do that if you're uninformed, you are closing the door on becoming informed. You're saying you can't do this because you're not this, which means that you'll never learn what this is. It's kind of like, it's kind of like expecting you to know how to mow the lawn before you know before you try mowing the lawn i don't or, think or, that's or knowing or knowing knowing how to do a th- do any sort of uh labor activity without ever having done a labor activity Bef- and before you could ever do the labor activity like with no communication there can be no education and and that that and that's my perspective Again, I'm not white. I'm Cuban. Uh, right. But but that, that's my perspective looking at it from, from, from maybe a different angle than what other people ever consider or look at is that mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're being sensitive and that's nice, but you're also shutting down communications at a level. Maybe not intentionally, but it's happening. Well, I think well, the key is ahead, getting, getting, getting the education before you start playing it. It's the uh, – I see this uh, – Obviously, representation is a huge thing in comic books right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see a lot of uh, uh, people talking about, yes, Marvel is, and don't get me wrong, Marvel has a lot of problems. Um, 
but Marvel is throwing out, you know, they have an incredibly diverse cast of new characters right now between Miss Marvel, um, uh, Black Panther's become a major character again, um, of, of Miles Morales is in the main universe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with some exceptions, a lot of them are being written by the same the same people who have been writing Tony Stark and and all of these other characters for years and years and years, and they are all mostly straight white guys. Um, the problem there comes into play is that, and what I see people regularly saying is, yes, there's a contingent that says, well, you shouldn't be doing that at all. But the majority are okay. Fine, if these are the people that you're going to do it, because these are the star, you know, stars among writers and artists. Yeah. Um, talk to people of that culture. Yeah. Find out, educate yourself, so you're not writing stereotypes. Um, and I think that's what that's where the hangup always is for me. Is that a lot of the people who, and a lot of the people that I've seen who who role play um as as uh, other races other eth- ethnicities or or sexualities or or gender identities don't do the research and so they come off as 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 insert the appropriate blank uh uh phrase here ist caricatures yeah um as long as as in my mind as long as done the research and you know you actually have some uh, a reasonably good context for how the how you know treating that person as a person and not defining them necessarily by whatever this that uh characteristic is it's fine yeah it just really happens unfortunately Right. And as far as all perspectives being valid, I definitely agree with you there. Um, The issue that I would say is that we've seen white people's perspective on other ethnicities ad nauseum for the past, you know, 60 years or so, you know, and it's generally kind of shitty. I mean, watch, (laughs) watch any movie with any ethnic minority made before 1972 and you will be, you know, that's that's absolutely fair. Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of the worst things that has ever. I will then throw back at you white girls. Once again, punching up, not down. <laughs> uh, That's more, more punching sideways at that point. More importantly, we can argue what, how effective it is, but that satire. No, it's true. It's true. Satire, it's satire. is an entirely different can of worms. It, right. It is. Um, but true. yeah, no, right. the, the racial stereotypes, the, the, the barrier gaze trope, the um, all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is... is that's, I think, the big problem. People are people are tired of that kind of stuff, yeah. and so it's very easy to get get gun shy and assume that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. So with that already overwhelming diet of here's what straight white people think about fill in the blank people group. You know, yeah, I I definitely agree. I would say with the perspective that okay, it's about time we heard from the actual people themselves. It's true. It's true. And 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 there's just there's just I feel like there's always in whenever this conversation is had, it's always had 
from the perspective of the not necessarily straight, but the white folk. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's 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 this funny thing where like large amounts, large swaths of representation talk are white people talking to white people. Yes, um, I, that's and and, and then and then yeah. I- including their perspective on their own take of their dominant culture, and I find it funny. Just oh yeah, as as someone who. I, I, I don't know if I'm just lucky or if it true or if Atlanta truly is the melting pot that I think it is. But um, in in this particular area, it is so culturally and ethnically diverse that I've never really experienced that level of disconnect between one culture and the other because they go hand in hand. I mean, you yeah. definitely have more of it than me. <laughs> I mean, Portland I mean, yeah. is Whiteville, USA. Yeah, it's true. Portland is is the is definitely okay, one too. of the Portland is definitely one of the widest places in the in the country. Yes. Um, um not as wide as Alaska, but No, no, you are entirely accurate there. Um no, that's <laughs> what what you're describing in terms of like I cannot count how many diversity panels I have been to or seen. Uh, and again, I'm talking comics industry because because uh, uh, con culture is the most part. But even but even outside of that, uh, uh, TV panels and things like that, where they're diversity panels, and you see four straight white guys, probably over fifty, all of them, um, talking about the 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 important the importance of of of. LGBTQ characters, or or um, <laughs> um, making making your cast ethnically diverse, and you're sitting there watching it like, really, <laughs> like, and that's where you get situations like the, the there was a there was an incident with Peter David of uh, of uh, last year, where don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of Peter David's, but he went fucking off on somebody who was asking about Romani representation. And he was, he had had one bad experience way back when and had, had, had formed an incredibly narrow-minded view of, of Roma culture, which he has since to be perfectly fair, come to realizations about and, and, and thrown out, heavy apologies and and so on and so forth but that's what happens when you get a a a a, you know mostly people of that particular style commenting on that kind of stuff eventually somebody's going to show their ignorance yeah so i guess the the purpose of this particular tangent right uh, (laughs) was was and is the and my, my purpose at least in this was was to to comment on the fact that representation is important. Yes. Um, It's also important to not discourage it. Right. And and what what tends to happen is that people tend to lean so hard into the sensitivity aspect of this whole thing that they discourage representation rather than encouraging the education of what you're trying Mm -hmm. to represent. Uh, which I find that is more important than discouraging. Like I, I find that encouraging education of what you're trying to represent to be far more important than discouraging people from representing things that they are not. 
I predict that we will be discussing this topic at some point again in the future on this podcast. <laughs> we will. <laughs> I, I, Maybe I, once or I, twice. I predict this will come up again. But it's relevant because because uh, 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 because Gilmore is is one of my olive skinned brethren. So mm-hmm. right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Gilmore is from a a land called Marquette, which is sort of this uh, 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 Middle Eastern Arabic uh, Mediterranean Italian Greek Greco Roman sort of combination country um, that has olive and darker skin tone folks. I always um, felt that it was kind of like Carthage, but maybe that's just me. Well, Car- that that's what Carthage kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. It's this, yeah, it's a sort of Mediterranean, it's a sort of Mediterranean melting pot. Yep. Um, which is what you would, what I, what I would describe Marquette as. Um, and, uh, and, and not only that, but he's also gay. Um, yes. As we or or at the very least, I'm pretty certain he's confirmed gay at this point. But pretty sure. from our yes. perspective as the players from here, gay or bisexual at the very Correct. least. Um, and and we have some sort of this first interaction with this, and Vax and Gilmore go off for food, and everyone's just like, okay, that happens, which. I in that's the kind of representation I particularly enjoy, where it's not commented on, even though we're commenting on it now. Right, where uh, it's not <laughs> lampshaded or you know yeah. put in a huge spotlight of look how sensitive we are, you know. You know but it's, it's just, like no, no, this representation is when all things are part of normal life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the the normality of the the almost banality of it, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, is is <laughs> when you're referred to as as banal, that's when you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyways, back on topic. Uh, Va- uh, Vax and Gilmore go out for lunch. Uh, and with them gone, the rest of the group look over potions and gear. Uh, Vex uh drives the poor uh assistant girl that Gilmore has insane with her bargaining. Um. And they uh, they pay they they buy some more potions and 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 uh, trade some blue dragon scales and eventually uh, eventually actually pay money and get done bargaining with Grog handing over some platinum. Um, and then at that point, Vax and Gilmore come back in laughing and drunk, um, which they got drunk really quickly. Like if you take if you think about the span of time this took, they got drunk real fucking quick. They, they either sucked down an inordinate amount of alcohol in a very short period of time, or they're both fucking lightweights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one's a half elf and the other one is a human. Although he's from Marquette, so he shouldn't be a lightweight. No, no, I have a <laughs> feeling they drink they, they drank uh, uh, rapidly. Who <laughs> drank rapidly and with and with great vigor. Yeah. And at that point is where the episode comes to an end. Um <laughs> So yeah, this is the, the uh, uh I, I feel like I feel like uh, uh the a better title for this one might have been shopping and shipping and representation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but then it wouldn't have then it wouldn't have had the banality aspect of it. It's true. It's true. Um but that was episode 14 of... I still like I've Eaten Let's Politic. 
And uh, there's some really good stuff in here. There's some awkward stuff in here, but overall, uh, decent episode. Also, yeah. Also gave us a lot of stuff to talk about, and I hope that we didn't lose all of our audience as we've delved into <laughs> uncomfortable topics. And to be clear, for the three of you that are still listening, um, don't shy away from uncomfortable topics. No. Oh heck no. Because the fact that they're uncomfortable is why you should talk about them. Yep. I'm I'm particularly comfortable talking about culture, and I know not a lot of people are. Uh, that's why I, I so heavily include culture in the worlds that I built. Like like in in Grand Terra, no two humans from two different locations are alike. And the same thing with elves and orcs and dwarves and everybody. Like there's there's a widespread of culture because I've experienced a widespread of culture in my life and I appreciate mm-hmm. it and it exists. It's a thing that exists. Um, and I know that that makes that, you know, talking about that subject can make people uncomfortable, but the objective here is to talk about it until you're not uncomfortable anymore, because once you're not uncomfortable, that's when equality begins or unless you're uncomfortable about everything, in which case you're already there. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, uh, I guess any, any last Things you want to touch on before we end this episode? I'm always a big fan of the episodes. I've I've always said I love the big action scene episodes and and those kind of things. I'm a, my favorite critical role episodes are almost without exception the ones where there's n- at least no there's no rolling for initiative. Um, and it's all the character interactions. Uh, and this one ranks really high up there for me. Um, I really enjoy a lot of the, despite the fact that, you know, it, it, it has a couple of moments that make me go, eh. Um, it, 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 it has great character interaction. It sets a lot of great plot seeds, um, sort of sets up where, where the storyline goes from here and all in all. It's just a really, really good episode. Yeah, and you know the the idea that even with only minor plot advancements, you can still have a full length production that is still highly entertaining is one of my takeaways from episodes like this. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Well then, we have been final show films. Uh, just to reiterate, in case you've forgotten, because it's been two hours since we started, uh, I'm John at John A. Bates. Uh, we have Jack at Alt F4 Gamers on Twitter and Jeremy at J. Thomas 411 on Twitter. Um, uh, we've been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at FinalShowFilms.com. You can check us out on our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash FSFilms. Uh, you can support us financially on the Patreon page. We appreciate that. Uh, we especially appreciate our $25 supporters Chris Cuffrey and Atonic, without whom we be able to do quite as much of the stuff that we do um we appreciate all of you guys listening and we also appreciate the folks at 411mania.com jeremy tell us a little bit about 411mania.com 411mania.com is a pop culture site that caters to everything geeks could be interested in uh we cover everything from movies and comics uh ranking the alien franchise or to get you ready for Alien Covenant, or the latest TV renewal and cancellation news as the, the, the networks announced their schedules uh, this week, which by the time you listen to this will be last week or many weeks ago or years ago. Um, <laughs> Decades <laughs> uh, ago. Ga- gaming news, uh, music, wrestling, MMA, uh, all the, and 
the stuff that Final Show Films does. Uh, we do news, opinion, commentary, uh, reports, uh, pretty much everything. Come check us out. All righty, yeah. Uh, we appreciate them for putting our stuff, and we appreciate you for listening. And we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.